Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. When we turn our pain into purpose, healing and transformation are inevitable. This is just one of the many brave statements made by my guest today, Catherine Choi. Overcoming her addiction inspired Catherine to create her hugely successful international lifestyle goods company called So Young. Catherine's hope is that her products will inspire and empower people. She now considers her very difficult battle with addiction a gift that allowed her to experience the power she has within and have no regrets about her life. Please welcome the incredibly brave Catherine Choi. Catherine Choi and I met through the the most incredible, empowering women's group that was created by Libby Wildman, who has very kindly sent me a number of wonderfully brave guests. Today's guest, Catherine Choi, has a story that, for me, was one of the bravest and most inspiring stories I've actually ever encountered. So welcome to Breaking Brave, Catherine. Oh, thank you. That's so touching for me. Even as you were saying it, I started to get like little tingles. (laughs) Well, I had more than little tingles when I read it on your website, and then we met briefly to chat before this recording. But uh, for the sake of our guest, Catherine, let's talk about who you are, what you do. We have an international audience. I know that they would like to feel grounded in wherever we jump off. So, So just go with your gut. What would you like the world to know about you? Sure. So I am a mom of three. Uh, I am an entrepreneur with a consumer products business called So Young, where we create um, beautiful and functional and durable lifestyle bags for life on the go. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's a business that I started as a young, well, when my children were young, I wasn't personally that young when I had my first child. And, uh, It was something that I challenged myself to do because I had uh, always struggled with feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. And I had gone through, as we'll probably talk about later, a huge upheaval in my life. And I was at a place where I knew that the way I felt about myself wasn't the truth. And yet it felt like the truth. And so I decided that I would act on an inspiration for a product idea. And it kind of grew from there. Beautiful. Your products are beyond gorgeous. Um, Thank you. in, in, In all the notes I have stuck up on my wall, I believe the inspiration for the first product being a quote-unquote diaper bag was based on you having a son and looking for something to carry the 400,000 things we all have to carry as mamas. So maybe you could just talk about that point of jumping off and and the frustration slash what led to your first bag. Yeah, so I uh, my son was about seven months old and I found myself in a curiously repetitive situation that as a mom, you're just always in the moment, right? You're only just dealing with the problems in the present moment. And I found myself in kind of this Groundhog Day scenario 
of every time I was trying to get into my car or get into my home, I'd be holding him with one arm and he would usually be squirming or crying. And I was digging in the bottom of my bag, trying to find my keys to open the door. And uh, usually it would take me a couple minutes and I would be sweating because I was so stressed out with this baby that's like freaking out. And then as soon as I found the keys, I would open the door and throw them back in. And then like, you know, an hour later, three hours later, it happened over and over and over again until I was like, you know, I should really try and solve this problem. (laughs) And one day I bought myself a formal diaper bag from the baby store, which I thought was actually quite smart because it had kind of these, this structure to the bag that allowed you to organize things. And one day my husband and I were sitting on a park bench and our baby was sleeping in the stroller and the bag was hanging off the stroller handlebars. And I just mentioned to to my husband, I was like, oh, this bag is so smart because it has this and this. But actually, you know, if I was going to design it, I wouldn't have Velcro. I wouldn't have this. And it's also kind of deep. And I started describing all the things that I didn't like about it. And, you know, this has only happened to me a few times. But this was the first time this happened where I had this moment of just inspiration. And it was like something opened up, right? And and it was this knowing like that I'm going to design my own diaper bag. And I don't know where that idea came from because I don't have a background in anything related to that, right? And it was just this clarity of, I'm going to design the perfect diaper bag. And, and it was so exciting to me that I, you know, I said to my husband, you know what, I'm going to design a diaper bag. And he was like, okay. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to do this. Right. And he's like, okay. You know? And so really, you know, that's kind of was where it all started with this understanding that there was an opportunity that opened up for me in that moment. And despite the fact that I had zero experience or knowledge related to that, I knew that somehow it was connected to me just making the commitment in that moment without the house, right? And that if I hesitated too long, that window was going to shut, right? And then I would be back in, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Which is what the period of, I had, you know, moved out of banking and software and, you know, I had tried a few things and I was really grappling with, you know, wanting to create some kind of business or life that revolved around something that was exciting for me, right? So it all just kind of came together in that moment. I didn't know that story. As much of that story as I knew was, you were inspired by the birth of your son and the fact that there really wasn't a diaper bag around on the planet that was going to do all the things that you really wanted to to do in a smart, elegant way. So how did it go once that diaper bag (laughs) vision that you had came to see the light of day? How did that go? It was a very, very slow process. Uh, I can tell you that that son (laughs) is now 19. Um, (laughs) And and I've had two more kids since then. And basically, you know, I had my second child um, within seven months of that. So, so I had two young kids in a very, very short period of time. And so this diaper bag idea really just like was something that, you know, just inched along as I, you know, was mainly taking care of my babies. But at the same time, you know, I wasn't naturally, surprisingly to me even, I wasn't naturally inclined to motherhood. I actually found it so difficult. 
And uh, I was very unhappy a lot of the time because there was just so much demand. And it you know, my second child was such a demanding baby um, and difficult from the day he was born. Um, and so, you know, the one refuge that I had was that I belonged to a gym that had a daycare, right? And it wasn't a fancy gym. It was a gym in the neighborhood. And I had always developed this relationship with exercise, right? Knowing that if I can get myself like sweating and like my heart rate up, that something shifts in me, right? And, and that, you know, it, I feel good, right? And so even though with two young kids, especially in the winter time, when you're like trying to bundle these kids into their snowsuits and get them in their car seats and then like drive to the gym and then drop them off, like it was really a slog, but I knew that once I was able to drop them off and go and work out, I could go into this space of possibility. And, you know, on the treadmill or whatever it was, I would dream about this vision I had for, you know, this business I wanted to create, right? And it was like exciting to me. And it was, you know, I would see myself like being interviewed by Oprah and like, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And see my stuff on the shelves of like, you know, whatever stores at that time. This is a long time ago. And um, basically it fed me during a time where everything else was so hard. And it was my, it was like the thing that allowed me to retain a sense of my own identity when, you know, being a mother is so all-consuming and, you know, you exist really to take care of, you know, your children, right? Um, and so that really was, you know, the first four years of my business, really, like, I, it took me four years to get a finished sample in hand because, you know, I had to start from scratch. The way that I kind of was even got to the point of a final sample was all just by talking about my idea with anyone who would listen. And when that person would say, oh, you know, you should talk to this person because I think her husband works in this and he might. And so that every lead I followed and I would sit and have a coffee with them and they would lead me somewhere else. And that eventually led me to a sample maker in Montreal. And then eventually from Montreal, you know, somebody connected me with um, factory sources in China. And, and then I was sampling in China and Finally, in 2008, I had my very first approved sample in my hand that was like, okay, I have it. Um, and so I basically put in an order for my first 400 diaper bags. And six months later, they land and they were 100% defective. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yes. Yes, they were sewn backwards. And this was my first <gasps> kind of introduction to working overseas with factory because I had no experience with it, right? So basically, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen. And just because something, they make you a perfect sample, you know, unless you have like the right mechanisms in place, nobody's checking, right? Mm. And so, so you know, it was just, they, they basically made a sample that was, uh, something was, in, sewn in reverse. Um, and so the whole batch was bad. And, you know, at that point I was like, okay, I'm out of business because I just invested, you know, like the little bit of money that I had to put it towards this. And, you know, lucky for me, right, that <clears throat> the person who had connected me with the factory was 
a friend of a really good friend. And he was really good friends with her, not with me. And, you know, I had been dealing with him. So this person wasn't the factory. He connected me to the factory. And yet he had been telling me that he was going to the factory to check. And so when I emailed him and said, they're all wrong, I think he had to really save face to my friend. And so he basically dipped into his own pockets and reran the production run for me. And that's like unheard of, right? So yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it took, you know, uh, almost another, you know, four months. And then I finally had, you know, 400 diaper bags to start selling, which to me, up until that point, I had the impression that I just need to have them and they'll sell right. by themselves. Of right? course. Of course. <laughs> they'll fly. They'll fly yeah. out of your garage or wherever <laughs> yeah. they were being housed, right? Exactly. Right. And so this is 2008, I uh, remember. So before the market crashed, I had about a few months of, you know, actually quite interestingly, pretty positive results. Because, you know, first I I was in a network of moms, right? So you could sell them to your mom friends. I went to a couple of shows, you know, where where people surprisingly would drop $150 on the fly for a diaper bag. But I soon learned that that's not, you know, that's not where, where you start, right? And I actually even remember going into baby stores with samples in hand and just like showing up and saying, hi, you know, can I talk to the owner? Like, you know, I'm really, when I think back, I'm like, wow, you know, it was like that ignorance is bliss type thing. And uh, and I remember there was one baby store on Avenue Road in Lawrence and, you know, the owner was quite like daunting and, you know, he sat down and he listened to me and all of that. And he's like, okay, we'll try six of them, right? And I was like, oh, that was easy, right? And then like, you know, come the fall, like the market crashed and, uh, basically everything came to a standstill. Um, and I remember I had decided to go to this baby show in Vegas. It's the biggest baby uh, accessory show in uh, North America at the time. And a friend of mine was exhibiting there. And so she's like, you can come, we'll share a hotel room, just bring your bag. You can like, you know, have a little table in my corner. And so we went together and at that show, it was like a ghost town. Because, you know, the economy, nobody was buying anything. And so there were more exhibitors than buyers, right? The, the, the hall was empty, right? And it just felt really, really hopeless. Um, and uh, I remember just thinking like, wow, you know, now what, right? Like, this is hard. Like, I, I, I don't know. How, I don't know what to do now, right? I don't have a marketing sales background. I don't, I mean, I can tell you the entire story, but basically, you know, If I were to give a through line, I would say that if ever I'm in a place of, I feel hopeless and there is no solutions, you know, I just have to look back to the trajectory of how I've gotten to where I am. And I can see that, you know, there is a way and there has always been a way that to get through. Right. And so, you know, as much as it doesn't, you know, help with the downs when you're in the down, right? Um, knowing that it's just a matter of like, 
you know, having the faith and holding the vision of what it is, you know, and checking in of like, okay, why am I doing this again? Right. Because there was a lot of that. Right. And really reconnecting with that and knowing that, you know, when there is this deep, deep desire to create something to like, just hold that above everything else. Right. And so, you know, at that point, it really felt hopeless. And, you know, I remember coming back from the show and, you know, I had shown my diaper bags to a sales rep in Ontario who was supposed to be the best baby sales uh, rep in the area. And, you know, I belonged to a mom entrepreneurs group. There were a lot of moms like me at the time who, you know, saw a gap in the baby market and they started a business while they had kids at home. And so I belonged to this uh, monthly mastermind group of women and, you know, we shared information. And so this was one of the things that I learned was you really want Leanne to be your rep. And so I had made an appointment with Leanne and I brought her my diaper bags and, you know, she's gracious and lovely. Um, and she said, well, I'll leave them with me and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll use them and I'll give you some feedback in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I get a call from her about a month later and she says to me, you know, I'm not going to take on your line because actually you don't have a line. She said, you have one bag in two colors. She's like, you're competing against, you know, this brand, this brand, and this brand. Uh, at that price point, she said, your fabric is a little peculiar for the product, right? And I was using ultra suede at the time. And she said, you know, I just feel like if I were you, I would go back and I would design a unisex diaper bag because that's really what people are asking for, right? And I remember her telling me this and I was like, design another diaper bag. I have like 400 of these or maybe 375 <laughs> sitting in my garage, right? And, and you know, it just was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, and so I went through this period of a couple months. Uh, I remember it was around the holidays because the last straw was I did a show, a, a women's um, trunk show just before the holidays where, you know, it was lots of moms with strollers who were shopping for Christmas gifts. And so I, you know, I paid for a table and had my $150 diaper bags laid out and basically watched as people just walked by and walked by and walked by. And it was like so disheartening. But the person next to me had, um, you know, a corner booth and she, she was a distributor. So she didn't make the product she was reselling. And one of the products that she had was a $20 rolled up chalkboard mat that was shaped like a cloud and came with three pieces of colored chalk. And people were lined up for that $20 gift item, right? Lined up around the corner. And I remember just watching her with like such envy, right? Thinking, and it, it occurred to me, I learned a very, very important lesson there, which was, you don't go to shows like this and try and sell a $150 diaper bag because, you know, as a mom, you want to do your research. You want to like really, like that's a lot of money. You're not going to just drop something that you've never heard of before, like drop that much money on a brand that you've never heard of. And so of course it wasn't selling. And it was like, you know what? I think I need a $20 product, right? And that that was kind of the, the takeaway that I took from, from that. And, you know, that show was three days. And so after the second day, you know, I came home, I was exhausted. I was really feeling just like depleted and discouraged. And I remember going to bed, just lying there and feeling like I wasn't sleeping, like feeling like I was just lying there thinking all night. But it, in hindsight, 
when I, in the morning, I realized I had been sleeping, but I felt like I had been kind of in a dream state. And during that night, as I kind of grappled with all these feelings of just like, like heaviness, right? I had this idea come to me and, you know, I was thinking about this $20 product and the idea was I loved linen silkscreen products and I would see beautiful tea towels on linen and, and, and I was thinking like, you know, my kids were getting <clears throat> my, I was thinking about the fact that my kids were getting to an age that, you know, they needed to bring lunch boxes to school. And I thought, what if, you know, I made these beautiful linen lunch boxes with those silk screens, you know, and I actually saw myself, you know, in front of the table with this wall behind me of different lunch boxes displayed, and they were all in different colors, right? And it was so exciting to me. It was like another light bulb moment, right? So again, you know, after what felt like a sleepless night, you know, I woke up and I said to my husband, you know what, I'm going to design lunchboxes, right? <laughs> and he's like, okay. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm going to design lunchboxes, right? And so basically I had this understanding of, is it time to like basically say, you know what, you tried and like just kick it in or do I want to try something else, right? And when I sat with that, it was like, I'm not ready to give up, right? And so I was like, okay, now it's lunch boxes, but I don't, I don't know where to go. And two weeks later, I'm sitting in a circle of another women's entrepreneur, another ladies who launch networking group. And we're going around in the circle, just introducing ourselves and, you know, what is our business? And one woman stands up and she says, you know, my name is so-and-so and I am in the business of samples. If you need a sample from anything made, I can get that sample made for you. Right. And I was like, wow, okay. I think I need to talk to her. And so I met with her for a coffee a week later, told her my idea about the lunch boxes. You know, we got some artwork together and you know, the thing is I already saw it in my head. So it was really a matter of like sizing and like imagery and colors, but it was, you know, it wasn't like we were starting from scratch and a couple months, maybe less than that, maybe six weeks after that, I was holding my first lunchbox sample in my hand, right? And it was, you know, uh, it had an image of a blue um, uh, retro airplane. And like, it was just kind of amazing, that process, which I still love today is, you know, when you conceive of an idea and then you actually physically hold it in your hands, that to me is always so gratifying, right? And I would have to say at the same time, what was happening while this process was happening was that I actually decided to take the sales rep's advice. And I decided to give my hand to try another diaper bag. And so this time I designed a very classic shaped and aesthetically kind of unisex diaper bag that was inspired by a bag that my husband was carrying. And my husband is very much into clothing and fashion and he always has nice stuff. And he was carrying this bag by a company named Filson. And it was like this very utilitarian looking, you know, bag. And I was like, I like the look of that. But, you know, with everything that I design, even today, 
The whole point of it is, is functionality. So it's not just about having a nice looking product. It's really thinking through what are the pain points of this product, right? Like for the diaper bag, for example, for me, the pain point was the deep black hole that it became, right? And so the functionality that was included in my first diaper bag and then even more so in my second was that it was um, designed to have a whole interior pocket system that allowed you to know exactly where to put your hand when you were looking for something. And they were like, you know, when I gave the demo of this bag to people, they were kind of like, whoa, this bag does everything. Like truly, you could turn the bag into a backpack if you needed to and all that stuff. And anyways, and so I designed the second unisex diaper bag. And so I got the samples for the lunchbox as well as the diaper bags around the same time. And I booked a meeting with this woman, Leanne. And I went back to her and she had made me a lunch at her office. And, and so I started pulling out the samples and she's holding my lunchbox. One of, so I had like four designs and she's holding one of them. And she says to me, if you decide to let me represent you. And it was like this total turnaround. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh my God, right? And so that was the beginning. And that was like, I would say 2000 and. Nine at the end of 2009 is when I was holding those samples in my hand. So it was like, you know, a long process. And I was pregnant with my third child. So basically, in 2010 is when the business really started to gain some traction, right? I started to do trade shows in the US. And I also had a huge, huge, like to this day, have never had the type of result with from a media feature as in 2010 when blogs were like huge and there was a New York City blog called Daily Candy New York. And I just reached out to her and back then there was no influencers, there was none of that, right? So it was like, if they like something, they will talk about it, right? You don't have to pay them or anything, right? And so she loved our lunchboxes and she basically said, has anyone else featured this? And I said, no. And so she featured our lunchboxes in one of her reviews. And we had mountains and mountains of like orders coming in from, and at the time, the one lucky thing, well, many other, like many things, but my husband was running a digital marketing agency. And so because of that, I had kind of this advantage that, you know, he was managing our website. And um, basically we were in the online game early. So when we got that hit from Daily Candy, people were able to order and like the orders were coming from all over the States and all over Canada. And I had emails from buyers, uh, like Restoration Hardware was one of them. And, you know, these chains um, that I'd never heard of in the US. And they were all interested in how they could wholesale these products, right? And so it really opened up just kind of like, this understanding that people love the product. Um, and even though that was kind of short-lived, I mean, you know, I got a huge number of orders and the UPS guy, I remember he used to come to my house and maybe he would like pick up one box every three days or something, right? Um, and he came into my living room and I had like a wall of boxes that were just ready to be picked up. And he was like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in 2010, is really when I kind of draw the line in the sand of this is where, even though it wasn't like a steep hockey stick curve, it was like when the business became 
more than like a side project. Thank you. You are a brilliant storyteller, by the way. So, <laughs> Catherine, I'm going to connect this now yes. to bravery. I'm going to yes. ask you to connect this to bravery. Because when we first started, I said your story as I consumed it before we jumped on this podcast was one of the bravest stories I've ever encountered. So, so far, we haven't talked about that part of the bravery. So, yes. in your own words, how does this, I mean, being an entrepreneur and starting a business and doing everything you've gone through with the failures and the ups and downs, yes, hugely brave. But let's go back to the foundation of this bravery and where that all started from when you were in Montreal and having graduated from McGill. Sure. So I think I'll go back just a little bit more than that, which is, okay, you know, sure. I um, grew up in Montreal, as you said, and, um, you know, my parents were immigrants from Korea. My father was basically, you know, in his own right, kind of a miracle, right? Because he fled North Korea on foot by himself at the age of 17. Um, around that time, um, there was families being separated and he was the oldest of four or five, I, I'm not really sure, in his family. And they were enlisting boys his age, um, to join the North Korean army. And basically, his parents wanted him to go to South Korea. And they assumed that this was all going to settle, you know, in the next year or two, and that they would reunite then. And so he did. And so he made, a, you know, many day trip walking with a, like a line of refugees to South Korea um, and suffered along the way, uh, many things, and never saw his family again, except for one brief period 45 years later. But like, never saw his mother, father, brothers, sisters, never knew what happened to them. And by many series of good fortune for him, he ended up in Montreal working at the uh, National Film Board as a, I think he started out as a cameraman. And there's a lot that I don't know about my dad because it was very painful for him to talk about it. So he would only really talk about it when he was drinking. And then it was hard to believe what he was saying too, right? Because it was like, so, so you know, we only got little bits and pieces, but suffice it to say that my dad was severely traumatized. And I would now, as an adult, I can say that he was heartbroken, right? Because he lost his whole family. And he met my mother in Montreal. And, you know, my father had a lot of anger and the Korean culture is very male-centered, right? And so he really, really wanted to have a son. And even though I have an older sister and he was very happy to have first child, doesn't matter, girl and boy, but he really, really, really wanted his second one to be a boy. And I wasn't a boy. And so somehow I became like the butt of his frustrations and his anger and his disappointments. And so growing up, we were treated very, very differently. And it's, you know, hard to say whether he was like truly an alcoholic, but he was a heavy drinker. And there were many incidents over the years where after having a few drinks, like things would erupt. And so I grew up in a household that was very traumatizing um, and where I was always on high alert, you know, and there was um, this sense that, you know, my life wasn't mine. Um, and... Also, just fear all the time, 
right? I grew up in a very fearful state, always worried that I was going to make the wrong move, right? And set him off and that kind of thing. So all of this adds up to, you know, very, very low self-esteem, right? And so I was able to kind of navigate childhood by keeping myself as safe as possible with just a couple of friends that I trusted. But for the most part, I felt like, you know, I didn't have the words for it back then, but I just felt like people didn't like me. You know, there was something wrong with me um, and I just was unworthy, right? And now that's the word, but back then it was just normal, right? Um, And so I never really had that sense of, that I was special or that I was capable of anything, right? Or that I was smart. It was always like, you know, you're dumb, you're fat, you're this, you're that. And, you know, so when you grow up that way, it's really hard when you get to that age where you're supposed to be an adult. But meanwhile, like the whole world just feels really unsafe, right? And so when I was at McGill, I was getting a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill and you know, I didn't have the university experience that my sons are now having, which I am so happy for them, but also really envious, right? Because it was like, wow, it's so much fun. My father refused to let my sister and I go away from university. We had to live at home. And so I went to McGill and I basically spent, you know, every weekend in the library. My father would not let us, you know, socialize. We weren't able to go out with our friends and stay out late. Like we go up, but we had to be home by 11, right? And so, you know, I just was really, really sheltered. And um, while I was at McGill, I met what, who turned out to be my first boyfriend. And the funny thing about him is that, you know, he was Italian and a nice guy, but really there was no real, like, it wasn't like I was in love with him. It was like, he liked me. I didn't know why he liked me, but he seemed to like me. And for me, that was something, right? And then it was also, he made me feel safe, right? And so because I had never experienced anything other than this, I was like, oh, I think I think I love him. I'm not sure, but maybe this is what love is, right? And so, you know, we kind of, as much as my father, I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend, like I was, I there was so only so much you can control, right? And so anyways, as we kind of progressed in our relationship, I graduated from McGill. And um, after the first year, I was working in a bank, first as a teller and then into, into like financial, as a financial representative. And during that time, you know, my boyfriend really, really wanted us to move in together. And I was like, my father's never going to let me move in. You know, never in a million years, right? But my sister had fled. She'd fled the coop. She graduated, and then she came to Toronto to study Montessori. And so my father had already lost one, right? And so he, as much as I was still like the butt of his frustrations and anger, it was like he also kind of held on to me like a possession, right? And so basically, I asked my parents if I could move into my own apartment with my girlfriend, not with my boyfriend. And, and at first it was no, right? Um, a hard no. And so then I started telling my mother, well, maybe I'm going to move to Montreal to be with uh, my sister. And so when my father heard that, he was like, oh, I don't want to lose both my daughters to another city. So maybe I should relent on this one. And this is how he let me move out to my own apartment in Montreal with my girlfriend, 
and her boyfriend and my boyfriend unbeknownst to them, right? (laughs) So there were four of us, not two of us, but anyways. And so this really was my first introduction to freedom, right? Freedom. I never had personal freedom. And in my head, I was like, I am going to do everything that I missed out on. You know, I'm just, I'm going to try everything, right? And, you know, what that amounted to was I ended up basically trying drugs. And my first drug was actually, believe it or not, heroin. And, you know, all of this was in a way like, First of all, it wasn't called heroin. It was called smack. I wasn't sure what smack was. And it wasn't like, you know, sticking a needle in your arm. It was like smoking it. And so it seemed quite harmless. And the way it came about was that, you know, my boyfriend had gone to high school with a friend of his who had not continued. He just, his education had stopped after high school. And he basically had a job in a button factory and had developed a habit a heroin habit. And uh, he was not in a good place in his life. And thank goodness he's all great now. But he was living with his parents and in their basement. And he was like sneaking around trying to use his drugs. And so when he found out that we had our own apartment, he was like so happy. Right. And so he would come over and he's like, I'll share, I'll share my drugs with you. Right. And so it, turned into kind of a social thing. My roommates were pot smokers. And, you know, this was something that turned into a Friday kind of fun thing, right? And uh, for the first time, I felt like this is what people do on weekends. Like, I don't know, right? So anyways, and, you know, it just really wasn't, um, didn't seem like that big of a deal in the beginning. But there was one experience that I had, which was, you know, maybe a month or two in, you know, I remember like it had gotten to the point where Friday afternoons after work, I would like really, I would like skip home, right? I'd just be like, well, I can't wait. It's Friday afternoon. I finally understand what people are excited about on Fridays, right? And, you know, we were sitting around the table just about to get high. And I look around and I look at my roommate, um, you know, my roommate who um, was the girl. And I remember just feeling like really resentful towards her because I had gotten to know her a little bit better at this point. She was really, really messy. And she was like mean to her boyfriend who was a really good friend of mine. And like, you know, it was just like, when it's hard to live with people, right? And so she had gotten under my skin and I just remember sitting there just judging her. And, and basically as you know, it became my turn to like take a toke. I took one inhale and I remember just kind of like leaning back and feeling this sense of pure love. And it was like I was hit with everything going silent and there were no words, right? It was like just this pure peace that I'd never, ever experienced in my entire life. And after that moment, I looked around and I looked at my roommate who I had just been sitting there in judgment. And all I could feel was so much love for her. That was it. I could only feel love. And that, when I think back, was the moment where I kind of turned into like, I need this, right? I need to, I need this in my life, 
right? And so shortly after that, you know, it took maybe a month or two, but it went from a Friday evening thing to a Friday, Saturday evening thing, and then a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then one morning, I remember my boyfriend came to me, he's like, I have our own, right? And so we didn't need his friend anymore, right? And so I remember going to work high that day and feeling like, all those feelings of inadequacy and insecurity, I could deal with people at work, right? I could feel, I felt like a different person, right? I felt powerful. And that was really and truly the beginning of a nightmare that lasted almost four years where, you know, I became, I descended into a very dark life. Um, that, you know, over time, it, it, it incrementally got harder and harder and harder and harder. That at the end of almost four years, you know, I had um, lost my job. Um, I was an IV drug user, um, amongst other things, right? And um, my boyfriend had left me. He had gotten clean a year and a half before me. And then you know, a whole other story, which I always like, I'm like, I can't believe this was my life, but he was running an escort agency out of our apartment and had left me for one of the escorts. And I was basically of the belief that this addiction that had, it's like tentacles, like just tightly wrapped around me. It was too strong for me. I could not overcome it. And, and I had decided almost three months after I realized this is, I'm in trouble, right? I, that's when I first started thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. But it took me another three and a half years from that point to actually get clean. And I remember thinking during that time, I'm going to die an addict because this is stronger than me. I cannot overcome this no matter how much I try. And so part of the way that I paid for my habit behind, besides, you know, uh, you know, every penny of my job. And I, I was able to actually stay employed, surprisingly, for a good long chunk of this period, right? And I wasn't a good employee and people knew over time that there was something weird about me, right? And it, there, were, there were lots of signs. Um, and I went from being someone who was super reliable, always on time, hardworking, to someone who was like always late and like skulking and like, you know, the energy around being a drug addict. There's a lot of like, you know, maneuvering and manipulation. And um Basically, you know, aside from my salary and I'd gone through, like, you know, I'd cashed in, I'd already started putting money away into my RRSP at that age because I worked at a bank, right? Like, basically, you know, cash in all of those because I'm going to be dead, right? Really and truly, that's what I, I had believed. And, um, and then, you know, the one thing that my father had entrusted me with, which was basically an acknowledgement or a validation that he had given me, which was after I graduated from university and I was working at this bank, I decided to um, take the uh, Canadian securities course so that I could sell, you know, buy and sell securities for the bank and get a better job. And, you know, I had heard so much about how hard this Canadian securities course is. And, you know, me thinking like, I'm not smart, 
you know, like people talked about how they failed it three or four times. And, you know, all of that, like all of that was in my head. And I was like, oh my God, how am I ever going to pass this course? And so I remember studying really hard for it. And, you know, even warning my parents, like, I'm probably going to fail, right? All of that. And in the end, what happened was, I remember the day that I got like in the mail, the results from this, this securities exam, and I got a 93. And, you know, I, I opened it, I was like 93. And I ran out to the backyard with like this piece of mail in my head, my dad's guarding. I was like, daddy, I got 93. And he's like, 93. Like, and it was like that moment of like, just pure. He was like the first time I just ever felt like he was so proud of me. Right. And because of that, he decided to give me power of attorney over his investments so that I would invest his money for him, right? And that was like him saying, like, I'm proud of you, I believe in you, right? And then fast forward four years later, and I have this drug addiction, and, you know, I need to pay for my drugs. And so I start skimming off the top of his investment money and doing all kinds of things to hide it. Right. Um, and it was like a very laborious process that I can't believe I had the energy to do with all of that. But anyways, you know, knowing that it was a house of cards that was going to fall at any moment. Right. And I knew that if my father ever found out about the money, that it was over. Like, I just could not face him. And so every night, you know, during this three year plus nightmare, I remember going to bed and at night, was the hardest because during the day you can act as if it's not that bad, right? But at nighttime is when the reality of my situation would really descend on me. And it would just feel like, I can't believe this is my life, right? And I remember just praying and praying and praying like, please God, please God, whatever happens, please don't let him find out about the money, right? And, and that, that's how we'd fall asleep every night because I knew my father found out I would have to kill myself. And that was it, right? There was like, there's no option of facing him or trying to get him to understand, right? And so, of course, that day came, right? And um, it happened one day while my sister called me one day and she's like, have you been doing something in daddy's bank accounts? And I remember as soon as she asked me that question, I was like, it's over, right? And so I got off the phone, like I made some excuse, got off the phone and I said, no, right? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I thought, okay, this is it. It's like game on now, right? And, um, you know, at the time I was, even though I was living with my boyfriend, you know, there was like that situation with him cheating on me that was all going to implode. And, and so I spent a lot of time in those last couple of months by myself and my dog, with my dog. And so I was like, I just have to get out of this apartment right now because the phone started ringing, right? Like the RBC was calling and my father was calling me and I was like, I can't, I can't listen to this phone ring, right? So I go out onto the street with my dog and I'm walking up and down the streets trying to figure out like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh my God, oh my God. And, you know, my mother had given me a prayer card a couple months before that. And my mother, I was raised Catholic, but I, you know, even though I was baptized and all that stuff, I wasn't like practicing. And my mother though was very religious and she just like stuck this prayer card in my bag one day. And I remember finding it and thinking like, what is this? Right. And it was like, basically a long version of the Hail Mary. And uh, for whatever reason, I had 
committed it to memory because it was just something that allowed me to not get sucked into all of the thoughts that were going on in my head of like this fear, right? It just was like a mantra. And I remember every time I just felt like so like overwhelmed by the situation as I was walking, I would just like get my my thoughts out of that and like just be repeating this, this prayer over and over and over again. And like, I was just praying for a miracle. Like I just, and the miracle was like, please let none of this be real. Like, please just make it go away somehow. Like this isn't real. And, you know, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not in this situation. And that was the miracle I was paying for. It was like, I don't want to accept that this is the reality of my life, right? And I kind of grappled with like, okay, am I going to jump in front of a subway? Like, how am I going to do this? And, you know, as I was really kind of noodling these alternatives in my head, you know, one thing I came back to, which is like, you know, it's not the answer. Like, I've always known that suicide is not the answer, right? And I'd had enough, you know, I've always, I always believed in people's stories when I heard the first time someone had an, uh, I heard about NDEs, near-death experiences, and about the light and the tunnel. I was, And I remember thinking, of course, like, to me, it was so hopeful that people were describing these things, and I didn't find it hard to believe at all. And I remember reading about people's accounts with suicide and how, you know, there were like very dark stories around that, right? And so going back to that, I was like, I know that's not the answer, but I don't have an answer. And um, there was this church that I uh, used to walk by in downtown Montreal. It was a beautiful church. And um, quite often at nighttime, like there would be no one there, but like you could go in and the candles, like you could light candles and stuff. And I remember like, even though I never liked church, I always loved that feeling of like reverence, right? When you sit in a church. And so I tied up my dog where I think I left my dog back at the apartment. It was close to our place. And I went to that church and I, I lit a candle and I remember just being like, maybe, maybe like, because I'm so desperate. Like, this is the most desperate I've ever been. Like, maybe this time I'll get a miracle, right? And, you know, as I was sitting there, a part of me just went like, why can't you ask for help? Like, why couldn't you just call your sister and tell her the truth, right? And, you know, it just seems so simple. But at the time, I was like, there's no point in asking for help because then they're going to try and get me to stop. And they don't understand I cannot stop. There's like this hungry monster inside of me and I'm just going to disappoint everyone. So like, that's not an option and I had shut it off, right? But when that kind of question came into my mind, I was like, well, like maybe I should just try, right? And so I kind of think that that was my miracle, right? It was like, there's just this change in thinking, you know? And so I went back to the apartment and by this time it was like evening and I called my sister and I basically like broke down and told her everything, right? And, you know, quite honestly, she wasn't that surprised because way back when we started using the first time, she'd come to visit me in my, in my new apartment with her then boyfriend and husband. And at the time I was like, hey, do you guys want to try something, right? Like, and so basically they associated that, right? Even though after that, they never saw it again. We never talked about it again. And one day when I had gone to visit her 
um, she knew there was stuff I was off. And so she went through my bag and she found, you know, all kinds of things, right? So she had actually found uh, the phone number of, I tried to go to 12-step meetings and she found the phone number of a woman who was trying to be my sponsor, except I was lying to her and pretending that I was clean. (laughs) So anyways, the whole thing. And she called my sponsor and my sponsor said to her, there's nothing you can do until she asks for help, right? And so when I picked the phone, she was ready, right? And so basically, you know, after this whole phone call and she's like, you know, okay, so what are we going to do? And I was like, here we go, right? And I was like, what do you mean, right? And she's like, well, I mean, I think you should go to detox um, and I think you should go to treatment. And I was like, oh my God, like this, here we go. Like, no, like I, I, it's not going to help. Right. Cause I had met so many people on my addiction path who had gone through treatment multiple times. And I was like, it doesn't work because you're sitting here with me in the room. I didn't see the other people who were the, the ones who'd gotten through it. I only saw the ones who didn't. Right. And so at the same time, I couldn't exactly say like, it's okay. Never mind. You know, like, I'll just figure it out. But thanks. Thanks for listening. Like, it wasn't that kind of conversation, right? And so I was like, okay, okay, fine. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll do it, right? And so I reluctantly agreed to, you know, this loose plan, right? And so over the next two weeks, while we were getting things set up, it was just known that, you know, I was going to continue using. My parents, my sister, I told my sister, I cannot have any contact with them. I just cannot. I just knew that he was the make or break factor in me being able to do this. And so she said, it's okay. And so in actual fact, from that point for the next four years, I had no contact with my father for the first four years I was clean. And what happened though was that from the minute that I said, okay, fine, even though every part of me was like, it's not going to work. I just agreed to do something that wasn't you know, my, like, this is what I need to do was, you know, I, I opened myself up. Right. And what I noticed was that things just started to fall into place. Like I was being led from this to this, to this. And so basically I ended up going to a detox in Montreal, even though I ended up trying to go come to Toronto to be with her because she was in Toronto ended up getting sent back to Montreal because I'd let my Medicare card expire. And ended up to this detox, which was exactly where I needed to be. And so I went to this detox in East End Montreal, which is a very like down and out area of Montreal that I'd never been in, right? And, you know, we we were walking from the parking lot to the building and there were like syringes lining the gutters. And I was like, oh my God. And even though like, it was like, you know what? Like, who am I, right? Like I'm, a, yeah, I'm an IV drug user, but I'm like, holy shit, right? And I walk into this detox center and it's really like just very low funded everything, right? But for whatever reason, when I walked in there, the environment just felt right for me. It was like welcoming. And within a few minutes, I connected with one person there who was the only other English speaking person. And he was also there for heroin. Nobody else was there for heroin. Right. And everyone else was French speaking and, and like, you know, I could speak French a lot better at that time. And so it was okay. But, you know, just having this person there who was there for the same experience as me, but he was a week ahead of me. So he had gone through the worst of the detox. And plus it wasn't his first time. So he'd gone through it a couple of times. Right. And 
you know, he kind of took me under his wing and he was like, okay, you know what? Like the next few days are going to be the hardest. Um, the nurse is going to come at th this evening. They're going to give you your pills because it was a medically kind of assisted detox. And he said, don't let anyone convince you to trade pills with them, right? So take all the pills. You're probably going to pass out for the next few days. And then I will, uh, I'll see you, you know, on the other side of it. And so indeed all those things happen. And as I lay down after I took the, the pills, the next few days after that were kind of like this dream state. It was really just, I look back and I, I, I know there were little bits and pieces of memory, but, you know, I, it was like I was just removed from the experience of my body detoxing from this heroin, which was one of the worst and scariest things for me that stopped me from even trying because I had tried on my own to stop. And, you know, it, it is really a difficult thing. And so I'd been so scared of that, but I didn't even remember it to tell you the truth. And so I woke up on the fourth morning and it was very early. It was like five, five thirty in the morning. And I remember like the light was, you know, it was sun sunshine and I felt different. And I remember just thinking like, why do I feel different? Right. And I realized that for the first time since this whole nightmare had started, I didn't wake up thinking about, I need to get, I need to go get high. It was like, that was just gone. Like that monkey on my back. Um, and, and instead it was like just this feeling of, I felt complete and I felt whole. Um, and so really I was like, what, what do I need right now? And I was like, oh, I would love to take a hot bath, right? And so I don't think anyone ever used the bath in that, that, you know, place. So it was like really not very nice, but I was like, okay. And I got out like, you know, the, the comet and I scrubbed down the bathtub, you know, and, and I took like the most amazing hot bath. And I actually continued to do that every single day for the next two weeks or whatever time I was at that detox. Um, and the truth is, from that moment on, I cannot explain, but the desire to use never came back. And, you know, even though that was just the beginning of my recovery and, you know, subsequently I went for three months of residential and then I went for almost 10 years of 12-step meetings, I never experienced the desire to use again. And the enormity of that really only became more and more apparent as I encountered people in the recovery world. And I saw how some people just struggled and struggled and struggled. And I couldn't understand why did I not struggle like that, but they were, right? And it was just, to me, the understanding that I had been given this gift. And I now call it a state of grace. And I am very much in tune with kind of the divinity of things. And to me, the through line to today and to my business was very much about understanding that um, this gift was given to me to do something with. It wasn't given to me so that I could just go on my merry way and have a great life. It was really because I was helped for whatever reason. And so that, in a very long-winded story, is the connection to 10 years later when I started my business. And I didn't know it at the time, 
But fast forward 10 years and, you know, I was stable. My life was stable. I was married. I, you know, I had my first child. But even though I didn't have the desire to use, after the first year, that feeling of wholeness and completeness kind of wore off. And I started to struggle again with those feelings of inadequacy and, you know, worthlessness. And I had gone through enough therapy and 12-step and like self-reflection to understand the connection between my past to why I felt that way. But no matter how much I did, like in terms of therapy and talking about it, I could not um, stop feeling that way, right? And so when I had that idea for my business, it was in a way me claiming to that part of me that said, you can't do this. You're crazy. Like, you're never going to be able to do this. Like that voice, it was like part of me saying, I ignore you and I'm just going to do the next thing related to this. And you know what? And then I'm going to do the next thing. And even though I have this grand vision of what I want to create, really, I'm just going to focus on the next thing. And when I get to that point where it's like, okay, you know what? You did everything and it didn't work because I didn't expect that it was going to work. Um, then it would be, at least you tried. Good for you, right? And you didn't listen to that voice that said, stop, stop, you know? Um, and that eventually became part of the brand story because I got to a place in the business that, you know, I never, never knew the journey that I was embarking on <laughs> when I started my business. And, uh, you know, the challenges and the learning and like the understanding of like, you know, that, it just so many situations, you know, you have this idea of what you think is like, oh, I just want to create this product. But what ends up happening is you have to learn, you know, sales and marketing and operations, and you have to learn all of these things somehow, right? And then, you know, start bringing in people to help, right? And so becoming a boss, right? All of these things have their own challenges too, right? And every single time I had to step into another version of myself to get through the next challenge, thinking like, I don't know how I would ever do this big thing in front of me, but then doing it. And in the process, what I saw was, even though I still continued to feel inadequate and I still was like, this is scary and I, I doubt myself, I could look back and I had enough history to go like, I'm not the same person who started this right? I am a completely different person. And maybe that feeling never goes away. And maybe it's really just about just believing and doing it anyways, right? And so back in 2018, almost um, eight years after the business started to really grow, I decided that I was going to share my personal story of recovery from heroin addiction publicly on the website, because I wanted to become that voice for other people who I wanted them to see, like, this is the story behind the brand. This is, this is me. And I'm sharing this with you because I know that I'm not alone in how I feel. I know so many people feel inadequate and they feel unworthy. And so few people talk about it. And we compare ourselves to what we see of other people and make assumptions about them, right? Not knowing, like, actually, you know what? We probably can connect on many things if one of us were to open up. And um, indeed, that's the conversation that opened up that really 
deepened my purpose for the brand. As much as I, I was in, originally inspired by creating beautiful products and that, that like, you know, just light me up. When I shared the story, it became even more meaningful to me that it become um, a platform for me to be able to talk about the things and my experiences and share and connect with people. And what is amazing is how when you take your mask off, other people feel the permission to do the same. And then there's this like authentic connection that happens. Um, and so we became like a brand. We, we became from being a brand talking to consumers to humans talking to humans, right? And that's the real conversations that, that I want to have with people. That's a very long answer to your question. Oh, bless your heart. I'm going to read something that's on my wall that basically with chills up and down my spine, this story and this, what I'm about to read to you, has changed me. So that moment has lit me up. What you've said, which I quote, when we turn our pain into purpose, healing and transformation are inevitable. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, there's some loose ends because me and the rest of the world, what happened with your father eventually and yeah. the money? I yeah. know you said you had no contact for many, many, many years as you were you were you were getting clean, you were getting strong, you were figuring it out. But please for for everybody wondering how that ended, can can you Yeah. Uh, however it did, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So um you know, during the four-year period where I wasn't speaking to him, I was actively trying to heal from the situation. Like, and, you know, that's a really catch-all term, but, you know, I was talking about in meetings and in therapy and like anyone who would listen about this conflict I had, right, with, you know, my father having just been this like hugely dominant person in my life. And then, you know, the fact that it's not lost on me that like my part, there was almost like like an F you towards him and like, well, you're the one, you know, you funded my drug addiction and, and, you know, I knew that I wanted to find a way to heal our relationship, even though he doesn't speak in those terms. And, you know, and um, so I grappled with it a lot, knowing that, you know, if at any point my father were to pass away, that I would, it would be harder for me to deal with that, right? That something was left unresolved. And so after four years, there was a period where, you know, I was doing different types of work and um, I had actually um, become interested in, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Landmark Forum, but um, it's a, it's a, you know, transformational week long or weekend for the first one is a weekend long seminar that you do in a room of like, a few hundred people. And it's controversial. Like, honestly, the person who took me there, who's now my husband, I went there because I was like, oh, well, you want me to come with you? Sure. But it was more about him than doing, I was more less interested in the work. But what ended up happening is during the weekend, it's like intense, 12 hours, morning, noon, night of three days straight. And they really break away. They break down all these like mental barriers. And one of them is, you know, the resentments and the the relationships that are unhealed, 
for you, right? And they actually have a room next door that's full of phones. They had landlines then. Um, people didn't have, not so many people had cell phones. And you, in the middle of the seminar, could get up, go to the room, pick up the phone and call people you hadn't spoke to in years. And they actually gave you homework to do that. And so after the third day, I decided that I was going to pick up the phone and call my dad. And so for the first time in four years, picked up the phone, called my dad. And I had this breakthrough realization that part of the reason why I was able to get clean was despite everything, despite the way he treated me and like took out all his anger and abused me and all that stuff, I had always known that he loved me. I just, I knew it. It wasn't a question. Like, it wasn't like my father doesn't love me, so he treats me this way. It was like some understanding of, I know my father loves me deeply, and yet he treats me this way, right? And knowing that I had that foundation was actually somehow connected to the understanding that that's what was able to help me get clean, right? And so I told him this on the phone. And that was the beginning of a journey of healing with us that took another couple of years, right? But my father, when uh, he passed away, when my second child was two years old. And so we had about five years of a reestablished relationship. And at the end of the five years, when he passed away, there was nothing that was left unresolved between us. It was an experience of forgiveness. We forgave each other. Like he forgave me for the money. I forgave him for, you know, everything. And there was a level of respect that wasn't there any other time in our life. So it's the one relationship that I look back and I feel very proud of how we were able to resolve things. God rest his soul. Did you, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. Did you explain to him that you were an addict and that you got clean? He knew oh, that. Oh, yes, he knew that. all of it. Oh, it was all, as soon as, as soon as, um, you know, my sister, because he had found out about the money. And so then, you know, my sister became the, the vehicle, the go-between. Okay. You know, and, um, and that was partly also, I think he realized on some level, his first reaction was, She's going to move into our house. She's going to move, live in the basement. I'm going to not let her out of the house. And that's how she's going to get clean. And that was how my father like kind of thought, like, this is, this is how I'm going to deal with the situation. And my sister was like, no, actually, that's not what's going to happen. Right. Um, and so I think he realized on some level that he needed to stay away, you know, and so he gave that and, you know, I'm, you know, really grateful that he didn't try and force the situation, right? So let's go to this question, just from your hip, from your gut, from your heart. What does bravery mean to you? Wow. Um, It's about being willing to go to the places that are uncomfortable and feel them and go through them, shed them so that you can get to a place of clarity in your heart. And when you have the clarity in your heart, bravery is required to be able to follow it, right? Because uh, just because you're clear on something doesn't mean that it's easy to do. So it's, to me, bravery is being willing to open yourself up to whatever is present for you 
because it's showing up for you for a reason, right? And it's connected to the thing that is most alive for you. (laughs) Now, your products, your So Young brand, your products, how can people, Catherine, connect with you, purchase your products, follow you, please tell the world so that they can support you in the beautiful work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. Um, So yes, our website is soyoung.ca and our Instagram is at soyounginc. And you could find me through at soyounginc at Catherine Soyoung. So I have kind of like a personal brand that, you know, is sits a little bit apart where I talk about more about the healing journey and, you know, all the things that I'm into. um, That's a little, maybe a little bit too much for, you know, uh, the brand itself. Um, and then, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can find me there. And uh, you can email me, Catherine at soyoung.ca. So those are all the ways. Excellent. We've covered everything, <laughs> except one thing. Could you spell, just for the world, Right. so young? Right. So it's so young, S-O-Y-O-U-N-G. And it's .ca, not .com, because .com is a plastic surgery site. So, yeah. (laughs) And we don't want that. (laughs) Catherine Choi, thank you for so openly sharing everything you shared today and for being so brave and for being such an incredible inspiration to anybody out there in the world who is listening. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.